Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. This is Cassidy Zachary, fashion historian, and your host for today's episode as April is still on break. But today I am so pleased to be joined in conversation by one of mine, April's favorite past-dressed guests, award-winning writer and cultural critic Eric Darnell Pritchard joins us. Eric previously joined us to talk about the life and legacy of Patrick Kelly, and today they are back to chat all things Haute Couture Week with me as the Paris Fall Winter 2022-2023 Haute Couture Collections just concluded last week. Eric, I'm so pleased to welcome you back to the show. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me, Cassidy, and hey, dressed listeners. I'm so excited (laughs) to be here today in general, one, because I adore Cassidy April in the podcast, but also I'm always wanting to talk about the collections, especially Haute Couture. And, you know, I live and breathe fashion. I have my whole life. So when it comes to the collections, (laughs) I'm always just like at my house going, ooh, ah, Oh, you know, and having all these like reactions with myself. Well, that or my two dogs, they're just like looking at me very confused <laughs> to, you know, what are, what are you so excited about that doesn't involve a treat for us, right? So <laughs> being here to chat about the Oak Couture is major for me. So thank you for having me. I know. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. And I enjoy following you and your daily, you know, you also share with us your joys and adventures in fashion and, and which I so enjoy um, following you. And you were started posting all of your like haute couture critiques and reviews. And I was like, I am totally reaching out to them to see if they will come on the podcast and talk to me about this because there's so much to say, right? I'm so excited to talk to you. We haven't done any pre-talking dress listeners. So it's going to hopefully be very organic and fun conversation. Last time you were here, as I said, you were talking about Patrick Kelly. You've been working on a biography of his life and work. Can you share any updates before we kind of dive into Haute Couture Week? Any updates on Patrick Kelly or any other projects you're currently working on? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the next couple of years are actually going to be really exciting for me in my work. I have a couple essays that are coming out. One is about queer gender and hip hop fashion. It's both historic um, and contemporary, and it's going to be in an exhibition catalog. There's another essay that I've written that's coming out in a book about the history of nameplate jewelry in fashion. And I also have some speaking engagements coming up too, including one I'm really excited about at the Museum of the African Diaspora. They're going to be presenting Antoine Sargent's exhibition, The New Black Vanguard, this winter. And so I'm going to be on a panel for that. But for Patrick Kelly, who I think about every single day. Yes, you do. <laughs> since I was eight years old. I'm happy to say that the book is being published next year by Amistad um, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And I'm in the process now of dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's before I submit the version to my editor. And I also have some other exciting announcements about like my post-Patrick Kelly biography book, Project Life. Um, <laughs> those are coming very, very soon. But yeah, just follow me on the socials. I'm on all of them. And I always update folks there, like Cassidy said. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's Eric Darnell Pritchard, right? On Instagram and Twitter? Yeah, 
Instagram, it's at Eric Darnell Pritchard, and on Twitter, at Eric Darnell. And I'm also on Facebook, but I'm less there. (laughs) (laughs) And just listeners, just a reminder that the Patrick Kelly exhibition, Patrick Kelly Runway of Love, has been making the rounds. So if you're lucky enough to be in Salem, Massachusetts until November, it's up there at the Peabody Essex Museum. So check it out and get your Patrick Kelly fill there until Eric's book comes out. So congratulations on almost being done. And of course, we'll update listeners when that book is released because we're all waiting with pated breath. So, oh, Couture Week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Always so many mixed reviews and feelings, right? But I thought it was really funny, this CNN article came up in my feed. I don't know if you saw it, but it's the title reads Paris Eau Couture Week, Clothes for the 1%, Thrills for Everyone Else. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely, it's like for the super rich, couture fashion is a chance to indulge, to splurge, to flex. For the rest of the world, it's an opportunity to watch the spectacle, escape into another world and ogle at the excess of it all. Obviously, you and I, I'm assuming you, unless you are an Eau Couture customer, Eric, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are also an ogler like myself at the glitz and the glamour and the fantasy. I mean, and pure excess that is Eau Couture Week. That's what we love about it, right? And it really embodies everything I love about fashion, the magic of fashion and the art of self-expression. What about you? What do you love about the Eau Couture? You know, like the whole week, I thought about how resurgent couture appears to be now. I think the most recent seasons that we've had, you know, like I spent a lot of time because of my work on the Patrick Kelly biography and just my own interest, really looking at the 1980s. And specifically, I was thinking this week about 1987 and the Quas Couture debut and how he and some of the other, you know, people who were just then the young and the restless, hungry designers, right? Like they made couture so exciting after so many years of ready to wear, ruling the roost in fashion. So, you know, as a fashion historian, cultural critic, fashion lover generally, couture, I think so many times in its history has been sort of plagued even more than ready to wear with the, you know, well, what's it for kind of question and who is it for? And I think the energy behind some of these collections are in many ways, I think, an answer back (laughs) to those kinds of questions, right? Some of the designers seem to be saying, well, it's art, so it's like asking what's art for, right? Others seem to be saying, well, it's for sale (laughs) and focusing on a future for couture that seems to be trying to capitalize on the customer base that couture has not usually sought out, right? Men, we saw a lot of menswear, but we also saw a lot of gender neutral fashion, which is also selling well. And so those looks that were more gender creative and fluid in terms of who would wear them, that to me was really exciting and interesting to think about. But the collections for fall and winter 2022, similar to the last season or two of couture, it feels, um, to the CNN article point, invited. <laughs> right, to the general viewer to participate in like this as a spectator, even if one will never be able to be a customer. And in that sense, I think it's kind of like what's happened with the Met Gala, right, which has kind of reached a kind of peak, you know, accessibility to the masses, right? It's the thing to watch and chat about, even if you don't pay attention to fashion at all, the other 364 days of the year. And so it demonstrates its own kind of relevance because people who don't care less, even if they, whether they're serious about it, they love it, they're excited about it, they want to know the history, or they just want to kind of have an armchair 
you know, critique, right? They're engaged. And I think that's actually really exciting for Couture. I won't go so far as to make the arguments that I think people often will reach for and say, oh, it shows the democracy in fashion or the democratization of Couture. I don't think we're there yet, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I do think it, it, it does something for the sort of like, well, what's it for argument? You know, I'm hoping that we'll hear less of that because I think that for better or for worse, so some of what we are seeing is answering that question. Yeah. We can now maybe, I think, engage another set of questions is my hope. Yeah. And it, especially speaking to the the question about how fashion relates to commercialism and like haute couture especially, it's kind of like, well, famously, haute couture doesn't make money for these houses. <laughs> So in many ways, it's speaking to exactly what you're talking about. It is more about the spectacle. And something that I appreciate the most about it is the art of fashion and really the celebration of the craftsmanship of fashion. Something that, you know, in the wake in the world of fast fashion, we really need to be reminded about the artistry of the clothes we wear and come back to it. And haute couture is like the highest exemplar of the craftsmanship of making clothes. It's not the only exemplar by any means, but it's one of those places where you can see really the art form of design and of the actual hand skills of making clothing that we wear for the 1%. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think what's, but what's really interesting to me, too, because I'm really nosy, you know, I have been looking at just kind of like, well, it hasn't historically been like the moneymaker thing, but yet we're seeing people who know a lot about money investing, right, in ways that is really kind of curious to me, right? Balenciaga in particular, which I'm sure we'll talk Mm -hmm. about. What role does it play even from the business standpoint, right? I think the answer to it is that it does create these like viral moments that like pull people in. And so maybe if they can't, you're not the 1% and you can't buy the thing that we just saw last week, you know, you get the handbag or you buy that makeup. Sunglasses. Right. And so it does serve a business standpoint too. I also was reading somewhere that they said something about like the couture customers getting younger, right? And also more men right, are into it. And so it's changing in ways that I think that even the historical point that it hasn't been the moneymaker, I think that there could be not a huge shift, but like, I think a big enough one just because of those kinds of changes in it. So it's for me just, yeah, I've been really nosy about that. (laughs) Yeah. And especially I would say to that point, especially talking about Scaparelli and Balenciaga, I think are two of those kind of houses that are bridging over into pop culture Mm -hmm. and, you know, they have like this huge celebrity clientele and they're maybe making the rounds in a way that Couture really historically hasn't, Mm -hmm. especially, I mean, because Balenciaga, this is only the second time that they've done Haute Couture, I think, since the 60s. And that house in general, just as kind of a ready-to-wear designers, is really bridging kind of like that high-low of fashion in interesting ways. So let's, I mean, let's get started, right? So I kind of thought we would start the conversation with some of our favorite shows of the week and maybe one of the hands-down best. I don't know if you agree with me, but what did you think about Scaparelli? Oh, yeah, it was absolutely one of my favorites. Um, (laughs) And is, right, in general. You know, Scaparelli, for those who don't know, was founded in 1927 by, it's found Elza Scaparelli. The house is known for a whimsical feminine approach to design, which is 
so me, one that really like views dressmaking as a form of art, right? The Scaparelli approach to fashion is most demonstrated or best demonstrated, I think, in the 30s. Um, Scaparelli designed dresses that were really deeply conversing with surrealism and with artists generally. And so her commissioning work by some of the best, you know, known artists of the time, Christian Berard, Jean Cateau, and of course, Salvador Dali, with whom she worked, you know, she, you know, connected with them around fabrics, embroideries, you know, other elements of her design. And so for fall, winter 2022 of Couture, Daniel Roseberry, the artistic director of Scaparelli, focused on a philosophy of fashion that is really close to my heart, right? The joy of fashion and the pure pleasure of dress, of adornment. The show's title was Born Again, which was a reference to the commitment to what Roseberry called creative innocence. And in his show notes, Roseberry highlighted that because fashion gets criticized as being so unimportant and frivolous and meaningless, that often designers and artistic directors and other fashion creators develop this kind of like insecurity, self-consciousness, hypersensitivity, whatever you want to call it, when they feel they have to like perform a seriousness that makes fashion relevant and worthy of our time and worthy of the attention and worthy of the clicks, right? And so he just really set out to do a collection that was about rejecting that and chose instead to embrace the state of joy that comes from wonder, from exploration, from play and possibility when we give ourselves over to an unapologetic love of fashion and design you know, that anything is possible for that. And that is also something that we don't have to apologize for. So for him, that meant putting that philosophy into practice. The collection had 33 looks, which were presented by models. They emerged onto this really ornate staircase before taking to the runway. There was a setup that was similar to the ways couture shows were set up and presented historically, right? Which were like these small and intimate and yet still very grand kinds of moments. And that kind of callback to Old Way Couture presentation continued as a theme throughout that show and has been a theme in some other kinds of shows. Recently, I'm thinking of the Lally. Balenciaga one, which really was a journey in this show through some really exciting moments in the Scaparelli archive, right? So we see it in everything from the fabrications of finishes to the silhouette and the styling. You know, I wrote to myself a note, I wrote the necklines are low, and some of them are going down to these belly buttons. We're <laughs> getting skin, skin, skin. Yeah. But, but the drama's high. <laughs> what was, that was something I wanted to talk to you about because the theme that ran across the board and collection is the nip this summer. Like this couture week, nipples were just like loud yes. and proud across all, all the houses. I thought that was really interesting. I can't tell you why, but yeah. they were definitely there on view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I wonder if like something is in the water, right? In terms of just like, you know, we've all been like sort of locked up in you know, homes for two and a half years. And it's just all about liberating like everything. And so like, I, I thought what we were going to get was just a kind of like liberation of glamour, right? Like where it's just like, we're just going to put sparkles and sequins on everything. And I, there is some of that, right? But then there's also, I guess, we're going to take off this loungewear that we bought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and show clothes. But it was interesting to see how people did that, right? Like what they were doing with the body. Because someone's like literal skin and, you know, the use of makeup to create these kinds of star-like dustings of people's chests, but then also creating breasts through quilting and, you know, things like that. So it was really interesting to me 
But I love the high drama of Scaparelli, you know, all the looks featuring ostrich feathers on ostrich feathers on ostrich feathers, putting it on hats, putting it on jacket sleeves, the gold hardware, the corsets. My favorite looks, I would say, in that collection were the ones that I think of as kind of like having this call and response between designers who were inspired by Scaparelli and then also like Roseberry being in conversation with them. The one that really stood out to me was the Jean-Paul Gaultier one, or at least I thought of it in that way. It was like a quilted pale yellow pearlescent crop top with this chest designed to appear as breasts through the quilting. And it evoked for me that kind of Scaparelli fun and laughter but it was also really evocative, I think, in color and also design of Gautier's bullet bras. And then there were also some that I thought were speaking back to like Lacroix, both when Lacroix was at Scaparelli, but also Lacroix's um, 87 Couture debut. So like this way of Roseberry creating something new by referencing other designers who were referencing Scaparelli was very <laughs> intriguing and led to something so modern is like really hip hop to me in that sense, right? The kind of sample thing that happens when artists sample, right? And remix, I thought that was really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's so many of these heritage houses that go through designer after designer, and they're not always successful, including Scaparelli has gone through numerous iterations. But Daniel's just brought something, I mean, he's really, really connected with her legacy in a way that is so exciting. And he does it in like this 3D exploration of Scott, he likes explore scap surrealism, which she herself did in the 3D, but he does it like in a hard 3D, right? It's like yeah. all that hardware you've been talking about. And so he has like these sculptures that just come off the body and encompass the body. One of my favorite elements was the heart that kept making an appearance. And there was like a neck piece and it's like the beating heart, not an non-literal heart, but the beating heart as a necklace. And then there's this wonderful chest piece. But he does reference Scaparelli, as you said, there's, he references her 1938 skeleton dress. There's Mm -hmm. some clear, very clear references there, but it's not all of it, right? And he does it in really creative and, and innovative ways. And then also just, again, this is haute couture. So paying homage to the craftsmanship, they posted, there's this like silver number. I don't know if you know know it, but it's like this all silver number. She has like this floral chest piece coming off of the top. And then it's like this, let's see, 4,900 hours went into making it. 21,950 Swarovski stones and crystal shades were used to construct the bodice. So it's like this kind of corseted-ish bodice. And then 200,012 silver glass beads were used to construct either the skirt or top. But like, this is the type of work we're talking about. Like, 4,900 hours into one garment. Is that garment affordable? No. Is it meant to be? No. (laughs) It's kind of like what you would compare to like a work of art, right? Like a Van Gogh or something. It's meant to be adored and appreciated. Absolutely. Yeah. And I felt that way about so many of the looks that were featuring flowers too, right? I read somewhere, a number of people were talking about this, but that, you know, Elsa Scaparelli, like if you look back at like her own memoir, you know, an autobiography, like she talks about like this obsession she has with flowers and gardens, right? They've been a big part of her own, you know, sort of designs at the time. And I love that kind of callback to it, but then also the modernization of the flowers. So you're getting some flowers and roses and all these different types of, you know, flora and fauna, but like you're seeing them in different materials, right? Leather and silk and they're sequined and they're painted and they're embroidered. I just really love flowers in general, but I love that kind of like viewing 
you know, the house and something so deeply, deeply personal, you know, to its founder in like a new way, right? It's like in some ways kind of like, you know, a, a way of, you know, I thought, thought of like Daniel Roseberry and Elza Schiaparelli, like, you know, having a conversation with each other, right? And like, you know, how- As it should be, right? Because you don't want yeah. these, sometimes these designers come in and you can't even recognize the house that they're designing for. And it's like, what's the point of doing a heritage house if you're not at least paying homage to like the design whose namesake brand you are literally working for. So I think he's done it in a wonderful way. And actually, now that you mentioned flowers, that reminded me that she actually, there's this wonderful story about Scaparelli, how as a child, her mother would actually tell her that she wasn't beautiful. And so she imagined herself growing flowers out of her face to become beautiful, which is kind of this heartbreakingly beautiful story that she then carries into her design and into her work. And I don't know if he's necessarily paying homage to that directly, but yeah, just a beautiful, like you said, beautiful integration and conversation between these two designers across history. And dress listeners, if you're lucky enough to be in Paris, there's actually a Scaparelli exhibition that just opened at the Museum of Decorative Arts, shocking the surreal world of Alsa Scaparelli. Anything else on Scaparelli before we move on to Jean-Paul Gaultier? No, I just thought it was a collection that was my favorite, not just for the look, but because it was hopeful about fashion, about couture, about its place in the world. And it just built from that standpoint. And I respect that greatly. You know, I respect that, you know, point of just saying the joy of fashion is enough. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And actually, you reminded me that I had this quote from Daniel where he talks about, he says, I think we sometimes get defensive when our critics accuse us of just wanting to make beautiful things. But what's wrong with wanting to make beautiful things? It's not the only important part of life, of course, but it is a part of life. And to make truly beautiful things isn't actually that easy, but it is a privilege and I'm grateful for it every day. And so are we, obviously. So moving on to Jean-Paul Gaultier, which of course, Jean-Paul actually announced in 2020 after 50 years of designing that he was retiring from his namesake brand and he's passed the reins and the keys to his brand onto guest designers who he's personally invited to come and kind of take their hand at designing under his name. And so the latest designer to have that honor is Olivier Roustong. Apologies if that is incorrect pronunciation, but Olivier took the helm this last Haute Couture collection. He's the third designer to try his hand at designing. I mean, can you imagine like taking over this brand with the designer still alive and very much being in conversation with you? Right. And very much sitting in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) And very much going to take that final bow with you. It's yes, but he did a wonderful job. Olivia said that this show is an open letter to Jean-Paul, an open letter of love. And, you know, maybe it wasn't the most creative because he was paying such heavy homage to Jean-Paul, but it was beautiful in so many ways because Godier has this incredibly extensive archive for, with which to draw from and to be in conversation with. And so you saw a lot of Jean-Paul Godier's signatures, you know, and, and creative approaches to it. So he had Jean-Paul Godier's iconic Lamelle fragrance. To his tattoo collection of 1994, you saw references to his famed corsetry, his fisherman sweaters, and then there was the Madonna Trump Loyal bare breasts. 
breasts that Kim Kardashian wore. Madonna actually wore a version of that in the 90s, but her breasts were actually bare. So again, back to that bare breast phenomenon of this season of haute couture. I think you're right though, Eric. I think it was like, let's let's be free. It's time. But something I thought that was really creative is Olivier, you know, there was a little, some more literal like references to the perfume. Literally, there was like perfume heels. The footwear was phenomenal. And something dress listeners, if you don't know about Vogue Runway, you can go there and see all of these shows. And what's so fabulous about Vogue Runway is they have close-ups. So you can see close-up shots of the, the shoes and the various accessories worn in these shows. And I think Jean-Paul Gaultier probably had the best accessories. And then, you know, he's such a playful designer and Olivier really ran with that. So he paid homage to the craftsmanship of couture in like really literal ways. So like there was like fantastic gloves with thimbles on the fingertips and then like the perfumed heeled shoes that I was talking about. There was like a tape measure dress. One of my favorites was this bodice that was a pin cushion. So it was a heart-shaped pin cushion and it had all these needles sticking out of it, which was lovely. And then in further celebration of, you know, and paying homage to the artisans who produced these couture designs, he actually listed the premiere and the modelists that were responsible for creating the different elements. And I guess that was maybe in like the catalog that accompanied the show. So yes, Olivier says of JPG that he was so ahead of his time about freedom of expression. Today, we talk about inclusivity. We talk about diversity. We talk about breaking boundaries. We talk about no binaries, no gender. And obviously, Jean-Paul was one of the first to do it. And he really was. I mean, (laughs) definitely... Always had a little bit of issue with cultural appropriation, probably, which we could talk about a little bit, I guess. But he draws inspiration from all over the world. But he also celebrated all different types of bodies, all different colors of models, you know, and ways that just the fashion industry, the rest of the fashion industry just never really did up until more recently. And he's, you know, known as the enfant terrible of fashion because of that. I haven't always been the biggest fan of his runways just because they kind of all are all over the place, but he's definitely one of the most playful designers in fashion history. And I think Olivier did a beautiful homage to that. Yeah, I really love, well, a couple of things. One, I thought the, the, the starting the show as they did with the menswear looks was really exciting and interesting. I, you know, really, that it was really, to me, felt like a collection of like Olivier. I mean, as he said, like a love letter to you know, Jean-Paul Gaultier, you know, I think so many times, you know, so many designers, you know, who are artists, right, they, you know, don't necessarily, you know, get their flowers, right, when they're here and really sort of get the sort of recognition for what they contributed to the vocabulary in fa- fa- of fashion in their lifetimes, right, or those things that talk about as trends, or sometimes they're just completely sort of just like, um, taken up and you know appropriated and 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 become so popularized that people forget right that there was a time in fashion before that person did that thing. So I was really happy to see him you know be able to receive that and participate in that. Having said that, I do think the experiment of having different people come to the house and participate in this way is really, really wonderful. It, it like gives something to always look forward to. And yet at the same time, I do not envy the challenge 
challenge, right, of the designer who has to do it because it is hard. Yeah, and just to be clear, Godier was thrilled or appeared to be thrilled with the collection. He sure. he, he jumped on the runway at the end and gave him a kiss and they walked yeah. down the runway together. So um, that was a beautiful moment. Yeah. And speaking of designers who are still alive but no longer helm their namesake brand, let's move on to Valentino, which actually I think was maybe my favorite. Possibly yeah. my favorite. Actually, I have one more to talk about coming up. But Valentino yeah. was talk about a like blockbuster, show stopping, like runway to end all runways. Do you kind of want to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. So Valentino, you know, for those who don't know, it's named after its founder, Victoria Valentino Garavani. And the house was started with Valentino and his partner, Giancarlo Giametti, in 1959. The show that just took place was appropriately titled The Beginning. And it was called that because it took place in Rome, the place where the house was founded. The models descended the steps of the age-old Piazza de España, the iconic Spanish steps in Rome. And like Roseberry, Valentino's creative director Pierpaolo Piccioli put, you know, together a collection, he wanted to evoke the beauty of our times, right, and what we long for, and not the more sad, frustrating, fearful mood that so many of us are in the majority of the time, given the ways that war and famine and hate and all of these many things are so pervasive, right? So, you know, I want to be clear. I don't think that this was a collection that was about trying to deny that those things are happening. Rather, I think, you know, what he was trying to do was insist on bringing us back to balance, right, as human beings and using fashion as the way we want to explore it. That, yes, these other really challenging, hurtful hateful, fearful things are happening, right? But, you know, that exists also amidst lots of beauty, right, that we have in the world too. And we can, you know, insist upon beauty. And I really love that. As with all of the collections for Valentino, Jolie used color as the greatest of his many gifts, right? Oh of my course, gosh, so much yeah, color. I mean, yeah, we got the Valentino red. You're always going to get that Valentino red. You know, right at the top of the show, there was a short red taffeta dress, fabric shaped into like these large rose petals. And this continued throughout. We saw it in jumpsuits, dusters, evening gowns, you know, all in this hue. We also got some incredible pink looks too, which, you know, though much more synonymous with pink is Scaparelli, I think that, you know, it's also an old favorite at Val Valentino that people were reminded of with the fall 2022 Ready to Wear show, which, you know, some people call like the pink show where there was like, I think something like 48 looks, right, in that collection out of 81 that were all pink. And so here, pink was no less grand, right, and no less memorable in terms of its impact. And I'm thinking specifically of this incredible pink cape with these ostrich feathers, trims that was just blowing in the wind as the model like walked down the steps. It was enchanting. I felt like she was putting a spell on me. <laughs> <laughs> she did. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I also think that, like, you know, while centering, you know, one specific color, you know, like pink or red allows for a designer to focus on, you know, the beauty in ways that not distract from technique. What I really loved about this collection and, you know, a lot of Valentino's work in general now is that it managed to show colors together in exciting ways and at the same time demonstrate a craftsmanship and rigor of technique simultaneously. You know, I think of Petroli as being like one of the 
like really great colorist in fashion. I think the only person beside him that I get like just kind of like, oh my gosh, about when I see their designs because of color is Christopher John Rogers. Oh, yeah. Uh, I always think of Iris Apfel saying, you know, color can raise the dead. And I really think like this collection and Valentino collections generally, as with CJR, really, you know, do that for me. So, yeah, yeah. And actually, just a side note, because we're not really going to go into Giambi Tisti Valley's collection today. I don't think maybe we will, but beautiful colorways. But the whole thing, I kept thinking, this is a Christopher John Rogers moment. They're having Chris, he keeps having Christopher John Rogers moments. I've seen these silhouettes <laughs> and these colors before, but I digress. Yes, yeah. And that's one of my great hopes. I, my great hope is for CJR to have a, a, a couture, you know, designation for, you know, in a, in a future season, not far off. I would just love to see it. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, everything he's doing is just, we're all eating it up. But Valentino, I also really like, you know, like that it reflected the house's real commitment to diversity and representation. I saw yes. like last about that online and, there, and some criticisms, which I'll mention in a minute. But, you know, they have models of various races and ethnicities, right? Different body types, different gender expressions. And part of what I'd, you know, read, actually, this was in the New York Times, I believe, that was that, you know, he wanted to do a collection that made him sort of reflect upon like what part of him is now in the DNA of Valentino because he's had a long sort of history with it, going back to working in handbags all the way to now being like the creative director. And, you know, I thought that that was a very humble and worthy thing for him to explore. But for me as a fan of his work, I thought it was obvious, right? Like he's done things with house signatures that have not been done. He's helped them to be known for an excellence in craft and colorways that is worthy of couture and become a must-see, right, during ready-to-wear and also during haute couture. You know, it's always like a feast for the eyes to see the Valentino show. But I think he has also really stepped up with regards to representation in ways that others haven't. Now, look, I'm not a person to give people cookies for doing diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice work, right? It's what needs to be done. We all need to be doing it. But I do think it's important to highlight when people do it and do it well, which is to say that he does go beyond the bare minimum considerably. Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's actually more models of color than there are white models, which I think is important. And, you know, we hear about this conversation. We've been having it for a while, but like, let this not be a trend. How about we just make this the standard, right? So we don't have to have keep having this conversation and keep giving accolades to designers when, like you just said, it should just be the standard. and We don't need to keep exactly. talking about it. But he really, I mean, there was, I don't know how many looks there were, but yeah, incredible. And then body diversity too, another really big problem in fashion. Again, why can't we have body diversity in fashion? And designers are showing that we can. In Ecuador. Yeah. And in couture. And you know what that means? Because we, as we know, in fashion magazines, they get sample sizes, right? So now that means that fashion magazines can get haute couture for larger models and therefore feature larger models in haute couture in their pages. So, you know, it really becomes full circle when we think about it, making a more inclusive, just more beautiful and realistic, reflecting real people, fashion industry. So, and I just wanted to say a couple of things about Valentino because I just was in love with this collection. The rose story, as I call it, mm -hmm. these roses look like they were made on cakes. They're so perfectly sculpted. They're like candy coated confections. 
And then it's like, they're all over these dresses. And then it's like, he punctuates this collection with like these silver goddesses out of like this fantastic sci-fi movie. I don't know how or why, but I'm not even mad at it because like you said, like bring all the glitter and all the color and I'm there for it. So much color blocking, such bold use of colors. I loved the limes and acid greens, all the feathers and the headdresses. I loved the shoes with the feathers and the roses. Did you Mm -hmm. notice that? Those were so bizarre and beautiful. Yeah, just a cotton candy pinks. There was creamsicles. I mean, it was delicious. Yeah. Delicious and beautiful. That's a great collection. And I think that, you know, for me, similar again to Scaparelli, it's just to me, I left, you know, looking at it and felt like just so like uplifted, you know? And I think that, you know... As long as you're feeling something, I think that that's, you know, great art, right? That's a good, that's what art should do. But man, I mean, we need to be uplifted <laughs> right now. And, yeah. And, and, I, and I appreciate them doing that and also doing it again, unapologetically, not apologizing for not giving us a doom and gloom, you know, just like self-conscious ego trip of just like having to prove, you know, something, you know, about fashion. You know, I, I think that that's, really great. Speaking of the art of fashion and couture's art and performance art, right? So we have Valentino and Jean-Paul Gaultier, Scaparelli, we're all more traditional, as you mentioned, runways. And that, you know, it's look after look walking down the runway. But then you have designers who take a much more conceptual approach to fashion, like Victor and Rolf, who are two of my favorite designers. They've been doing couture since the 90s. It's like their signature. It's mainly what they do. I would love if we could talk about them and kind of like the theatrical performance of couture. So bringing the art of fashion to us in a in a different way and always in like a fun, creative and exciting way. Yeah, the house has always, you know, done that for me. I mean, you go back to like their very first show in 93, which, you know, they were only a year out of school at the time, you know, and what we can always count on them for is not only great construction and technique, but an imaginativeness and design and also the presentation of that design. I think about two shows, you know, that sort of, I think, go back to this one, right, was a show they did in 99 and then also a show in 2010. So the show in 99, they had a model, you know, stand on a pedestal that was turning as they put, you know, more and more layers of things on her, right? And then fast forward to fall 2010, they had Kristen McMenemy, one of my most favorite ever of the Supers, get on a carousel that was rotating, you know, wearing this massive coat. And as she turned, the couturiers took off 23 layers of clothes. Wow. That's the next models in what they, you know, took off of her, right? So the 99 show was known as their Russian doll. And then in fall 2010, when they took the layers off of Krista McMenemy and then dressed the models in what they were removing from her, you know, that was also a sort of like link, you know, call back to that Russian doll collection. And so here in this show, they had models coming out in these like incredible and, you know, jackets that were just with shoulders, like, you know, I mean, talk about, you know, head and shoulders. It was just like (laughs) paired with, you know, shirts that were, you know, with different various kinds of stripes. And, you know, there were lavender ones and navy blue ones and yellow. And then midway through the show, right, they, you know, go back to this similar moment where they, you know, come out onto the stage 
and they are taking those looks and actually removing the jackets that have those high shoulders and putting it into a proportion that is much more sort of, you know, less exaggerated, right? And so the looks were exactly the same in many instances, right? You know, the pinstripe suit was shown again, but just, you know, with the different shoulder. And, you know, I just thought that, you know, that kind of like performance, right, like in their work is very much them. But I think it's also really exciting to see because it sort of, it really puts us back in the frame of mind of reminding us of fashion as a mode of performance, right? And also as a, as a form of contemporary art. And we're seeing that in real time with their designs. What'd you think about it? I loved it as I always do. I mean, they're kind of, I don't really pay, as our listeners know, much attention to ready to wear. So I always look forward to haute couture because of the art of it. So the designers who do fashion as performance and ready to wear, I do pay attention to. But no one, I think, does it better than Victor and Rolf. And I I loved this show as no exception. It's called They called it Power Dressing, a fashion show in three acts. And on their website, they talk about the before, which is like these radically tailored looks strut the grid off the catwalk like peacocks. Masculine coats, jackets, and shirts are narrow at the hips and cut away from the top. And I mean, when Eric said big, they're like massive constructions of suit that are suits that are like framing the tiny bodies of these models. Graphic, compact fabrics underline their sculptural rigor. The surreal silhouette seems literally inflated as if ready to explode. A harsh feeling of tension pervades the moment. And then the second act is the power transformation when Victor and Rolf came onto the runway and transformed these looks. And they said, without the construction that creates an illusion of power, a new perspective arises. And then the third act is after where radically, you take this radical tailoring, you look at it at a second glance. A release of tension generates comfort. Hard becomes soft shape becomes draped, radical is wearable. And so, and you know, there's the idea of power dressing and the power suit with women and this combination of like Mm -hmm. the masculine and feminine elements of the suit. And I think it's on their website where there's a before and after. So they have the same looks, one with this like before and then the after is like the actual wearable look, quote unquote wearable look. So yeah, just fun and creative. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, my favorite was a lavender suit that had a pink and white striped shirt underneath. And then there was a kind of like a canary yellow pinstripe suit that had a lavender shirt with ruffles around the neckline and a white bow and white lapels. It was just extraordinary. Is that the one you would order if you had an haute couture budget? If I had an haute couture budget, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, and then also they gave me so many, they gave ruffles. Okay. They gave ruffles on ruffles on ruffles. They gave cape on cape on cape. Like, I mean, these are all things that are in the like Eric, like, <laughs> like repertoire. Right? <laughs> I love a cake, a cape. I love a cake too, but I love, <laughs> I love a cake. I love a cape. I love a ruffle. So yeah, they were definitely where I needed to be. <laughs> And I don't know if I've told this story on dress before, but I'll tell you now. My husband and I went to Amsterdam for the first time, sat down at a cafe of all the cafes that you could sit down in Amsterdam. And guess who was there? Victor and Rolf. Oh my God. I'm like, seriously? Like, how did this happen to me? I'm thank you universe. But it was just so amazing. I'm like, shot, shot, you know, t- trying to tell my husband who they are without, they're like a couple tables away from me. And of course I didn't go introduce myself or anything, but I'm a huge fan of Victor and Rolf. So. <laughs> the universe brought us together, if only for that moment. <laughs> so if we're talking about theater and performance, we cannot, you know, go away from here without talking about Maison Margiela and John Galliano's insane, I don't even know, 
how to, I mean, I'm going to try to explain this to everyone. They're going to have to watch this film because this is the art of fashion, the cinematic art of fashion. Did you watch the the show? Yeah, well, I actually first saw it in stills, right? Okay. And then I went back and looked at the actual show, yeah. So I'm, I would explain it as like a dystopian American Western, like Kill mm-hmm. Bill with a cast of colorful characters and fantastically dressed characters. But dress listeners, if you haven't heard of this or seen this, this was a recorded, like a film recorded live in real time at a theater in Paris. So his fashion show, all his fashions was on his cast of characters. As Sarah Mora Vogue tells us, models lip synced to a pre-recorded soundtrack as the live stream movie unfolded in real time. So I'm going to try to explain this, but... They were like, there was cameras on the stage. There was models all over the place and acting different pieces from the film. And the film was being recorded and projected above onto a screen. And you watched it unfold in front of your very eyes. So you could either watch what was happening on stage or you could watch the actual film that was being edited live and projected on that screen. And apparently he was inspired by a stage production of Dracula. And this was... This theater company imitating the dog who did similarly did this technique of quote unquote stitching together this video in real time. And that's what he, so he collaborated with them to create this. This is what Sarah Moyerovo calls a fantastically costumed American psychodrama of dreams and nightmares that played out on stage screens and live streams from the Palais de Chaillot in Paris. Galliano's model muses, the cast who've worked with him throughout the pandemic, plus a few grand supermodels lip synced to a script following the misfortunes of a desperate pair of young lovers on the run. And the young lovers were Hen and Count. They are step-siblings. Their parents had been married. They murder their parents for good reasons, you know, in typical American. American Western flair and then are thus on the run and go through this like, you know, nightmare dream scene. I don't know how else to explain it. You're just going to have to watch it. And I've never seen anything like it. Like I said, his clothes, his collection were what all of these people wore. And it was like kind of like a dystopia and a Western dystopia. And so I don't know if our listeners are familiar with, with what Galliano's been doing at Margella, but he upcycles pieces. So it's a lot of like mixing different types of garments to create new silhouettes. There was lots of voluminous silhouettes. So Women's Wear Daily tells us that they provided a somewhat chaotic showcase for the intricate designs, which mixed innovative textures, some created by blasting garments with sand, with diaphanous gowns, sculptural coats inspired by the golden age of Hollywood, cowboy duster coats, and sequin teddy boy jackets mingled with trapeze dresses spiced together from sorbet colored tool petticoats and recycled pieces from 19th century bed linen. I mean, it was all over the place, but it was so fun to watch. Oh, wow. Yeah. There was one in particular that I thought about and it reminded me, I was like, it's like a glitter cowboy. Exactly. <laughs> like a, a dirty glitter cowboy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, if Brokeback Mountain went to you know, the queer nightclub, you know, like of our dreams and, you know, the DJ just dropped Break My Soul by Beyonce, right? Like was what I heard in my head. It was, yeah, it's really extraordinary. Yeah. And apparently it had to do, it was inspired by Galliano's own struggles with substance abuse is what Sarah writes about in that Vogue article. And of course, he famously had to step down as the creative director of Dior after his anti drunken anti-Semitic rant. God, it's been probably over a decade now since that happened. And he had a lot of work to do to come back into the good graces of the Jewish community and into fashion. And he's done that through Maison Margiela. 
And so he talked about how she asked him if these reoccurring nightmares swirling around sin, sex, death, and parental and societal abuse were subconsciously autobiographical. And he nodded. And apparently at the end of the show, there's a smash black mirror dress, which is a symbolic reflection of the psychological impossibility of fully escaping memory, even in quote unquote recovery, if ever there was one. And I also just want to say something else um, that's been kind of noted is that, and actually this was my initial reaction when I saw it was that it should have come with a trigger warning, like a literal trigger warning, because the first thing you see is like guns and blood. And for Americans right now, yeah. You know, very sensitive topic. And mm-hmm. apparently there was more than one American fashion editor or theater goer that left because of that. So trigger warning, dress listeners, if you are going to watch this, there is guns and there is violence. So is there any other designers or highlights that you want to talk about, Eric, before we end our conversation? Yeah, I would say kind of like, you know, if I had to look back over the week, you know, one of the ones that was, I would say, not surprising to me, because I think, you know, I really enjoy this label anyhow, but I was really excited by it was Rahul uh, Mishra's collection. Yes. Couture Week. I, you know, know less about Rahul Mishra, but from what I know, is I, I, like they started out, he started out really, you know, making a name initially by winning the, the Walmart Prize. And I think today is still the only in to have won, or the first Indian to have won the Walmart Prize, which is, you know, one of the most prestigious prizes in fashion. But he also is the only Indian designer that's a part of the French couture. And so, you know, I just was really excited to sort of see and be more attentive to that collection this time around when I saw the theme, which was the, the Tree of Life. And I'll just read to you the description. And this is from Vogue Runway, the tree of life recalling a banyan tree growing in the courtyard of his ancestral home, which was tended by his grandmother as a protective force of wisdom and abundance. And here's a quote, that tree has been there forever, Mishra explained backstage, his delight palpable at being back on the in real life haute couture schedule post-pandemic. Proud to be the only Indian designer admitted into the inner sanctum of French couture, he wanted to celebrate his new cycle with an ebullient opulent collection, quote, whose meaningful concept just felt right for this moment, he said. And what I really loved about this collection was, I mean, all of them, I keep saying craftsmanship, but like truly, right, just the way that some of these looks are, right? Like, so they look like these really big, sprawling, voluminous, like, trees, right, in some respect, like gold leaf. I say gold, 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 that entire collection is gold, and it's just insanely beautiful. Yeah, I just thought it was like, you know, really beautiful and just the time that it must have taken to, you know, I kept, I looked around to see like if there was any more detailed description about that. I don't know if you saw it, but, you know, we talked about the amount of hours it took for other people. You know, I wondered like, you know, to yes. garments that like had this kind of 3D, you know, like structure about it and, you know, to have them just, you know, just look so 
like stunning and, you know, gorgeous. Like, you know, how much time did that take? But I really liked also just the range of, you know, some of the ways it was applied. Like everything wasn't, a, you know, addressed. There were ball gowns, there were jumpsuits and, you know, various sort of, you know, approaches to like the incorporation of that gold motif. I thought was really exciting and interesting too. So I guess my point with Rahul Mishra is that like in previous seasons, like I've been, you know, sort of aware, but that this was for me the breakout sort of season where I will definitely be paying even more attention in the future. Yeah. And I just want to say, too, just to clarify that, you know, there's a federate, the governing body of the haute couture industry is exclusive to France and Paris, and they really pride themselves on that. So there are members like Chanel, Dior, and Scaparelli that are like their members that are in France and kind of building on that tradition that started in the 19th century with Charles Frederick Worth and continues today. And then they have what are called correspondent members, which are members that are operating outside of France. So that's Versace, Iris Van Herpen, Valentino, Victor and Rolf Rucci. There's guest members that are invited every season to present. And so Raul is one of those members who is who is invited to present, um, being the first and only Indian designer to present at Paris Haute Couture Week. But what I really love about Raul is that it really shows us the French haute couture really likes to pride themselves on being like this kind of exclusive, but also exclusionary, you know, federation that's very much a French European thing. But craftsmanship and the art of creating fashion and clothed expression is not unique to France. It exists all over the world, obviously. And India is one of those those places that has an incredibly rich artistic textile heritage. And so that is on full display in Raul's garments. You asked if I had any info about how the time that these garments created took so that tree of life dress that you mm-hmm. just mentioned, it's 3D hand embroidered. They say kind of their quote about it is that the model Naya Gatbell paints a golden tree illuminated under the glorious setting sun with extensive golden thread work and array of materials, including kundan, sequins, beads, and cords adorning the surface. It's a celebration of nature's opulence and abundance. Do you want to take a guess at how long it took to make that dress? 6,000 hours. <laughs> 10,000 human hours. Oh my God. <laughs> 10,000. And I love his Instagram because he, and we'll put links to this, dress listeners, because he shows videos of all of this hand embroidery that went into, I mean, these are just stunningly drop dead gorgeous clothing. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Eric, and you've said repeatedly, like it is okay to have fashion that is beautiful for beauty's sake, art for art's sake, beauty for beauty's sake. That is what we all need more of in this world. And all of these collections that we've talked about really speak to that theme today about why we need it and will continue to need it moving forward. Yeah. And I love that you highlighted too that Raul Mishra is working with, you know, artisans in India through, you know, techniques that are specific to the cultures and histories, right, of Indian people and the way that that makes an intervention into, you know, how haute couture is conceived of. I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, of similar arguments, right, that are, you know, can be made and, you know, have been made regarding, you know, Black American communities and quilting, right, and how we see those things often show up on runways and get talked about in terms of the amount of time it takes and, you know, things like that. And when, you know, those things have long 
long been a part, right? Like of Black, you know, cultural traditions and histories, as has making clothes made to measure. Sometimes because we couldn't go into the stores, mm-hmm. right? And just buy the thing we want. We, you know, we, we went about tailoring and went about, you know, learning the techniques to make, you know, the things that we wanted to have. But I also think about someone like Zenab Zashedu, right? Who is, you know, an accessories designer, a Nigerian accessories designer. I remember a couple of years ago, I heard her do an interview, but she talked about how, you know, the importance of, for her, of working with, you know, being a Nigerian designer, working with Nigerian artisans, that it really pushes back on the notion of what counts as luxury, right? And also who owns time with regards to luxury. So even when we try to quantify in, you know, in the amount of time that it takes to do a thing, right? What that actually means, you know, to an artisan in Nigeria is not the same that it means to an artisan working in Rome, is not the same as it means to an artisan working in India. On that point alone, Right. You know, what counts as couture, what makes it luxury if we're quantifying those things in terms of time and also a skill set. Right. That is very unique, you know, painstakingly learned and then applied. Right. We then we have couture everywhere. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yes. And thank you so much for making that point. And actually, we have a couple, a series of episodes coming up where we talk about how we define fashion and why we really need to continue expanding the narrative of fashion history in ways that really encompass not just like, for instance, as you mentioned, American quilting and the contributions of Black Americans to fashion in ways that have never fully been recognized until now. Actually, on Tuesday, we just interviewed Kimberly Jenkins in our episode about her podcast, Invisible Seams. But also we're going to ha- talk about how fashion is u- usually just narrowly defined by Euro-American, often white designers. And as you just spoke to and how designers like Raul also speak to, this is not exclusive to Europe or America. There are beautiful iterations of fashion and the fashion self throughout history and around the world. And it is what makes life worth living. In my my (laughs) opinion, clothing is one of the things that we all share and connects us in so many beautiful and profound ways. So I hope that the haute couture continues to expand and invite this more diverse creative offering into their echelons. Yeah, it's a big part of how it's going to survive, right? As do most things, right? Is to, you know, because it's what keeps it fresh, it keeps it exciting. And I mean, you know, just in my, you know, opinion, right? I just think it's ethically sound and the right thing to do. But I also don't think that anything has ever suffered by more people getting to tell a story. And that's what fashion is, right? Fashion is, you know, another way of people getting to tell stories, um, their own stories, but also as with most modes of expression, right? Um, In the words of, you know, the writer Shari Maraga, it's a way that we enter the lives of others, right? And that's how we create empathy and understanding and, you know, knowledge, right, is through, you know, being able to, in an ethical way, right, enter and, and engage with the lives, experience, histories of, of people who are not ourselves. And, you know, fashion's potential to do that, as well as the way it has already done it, has always been really exciting to me. You know, that's why we're here. That's why I listen to podcasts like Dress. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, that's a beautiful way to end this conversation today, Eric. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been really, really wonderful. Thank you for having me. And take care, everybody. This has been really great. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was so fun. Thank you. Well, that does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you celebrate the artistry, tradition, and heart behind the clothes we wear next time you get dressed. 
For Images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at just underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at just at iHeartMedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.